everyone. Welcome to the Being Giants podcast, a show by academics for academics. I'm one of your hosts, Joyce Yeager, and today I'm talking with Dr. Alex Hayden, a paleoseismologist with the U.S. Geological Survey. We'll talk about her job at the USGS, a bit about earthquakes, and how her science interest is somewhat linked to health problems she encountered when she was younger. We hope you enjoy the episode. Hi, Alex. Hi, Joyce. <laughs> okay, so um, today I'm talking to Dr. Alex Hayden. Alex is a paleoseismologist. Is that still a fair title for you? Totally a fair title. Sweet. Uh, she's working at the U.S. Geological Survey, uh, and she recently got a new position, a permanent position there, after being a Mendenhall postdoc fellow there. And before that, she did her PhD at the University of Southern California, which is how I know her. And before that, a master's at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. And she got her BA at Wellesley. And yeah, Alex, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. Awesome. So I wonder if you could first give us like a little overview of what your research is and maybe what your day-to-day job is like during the pandemic and also not during the pandemic (laughs) yeah sure so um yeah like you said i'm paleoseismologist so that's just studying old earthquakes and so i'm really interested in the past behavior of faults and um, how they've behaved over time and and space uh, across different fault networks so in a place like southern california for instance like there's the san andreas but then there are loads of other faults that are all kind of working together to accommodate that plate boundary motion so it's it's quite interesting to study all of those faults as part of a system and understand when they're having earthquakes and if they sort of behave in coordinated patterns or not um so that's sort of the main thing that really interests me, but what do I actually do? <laughs> um, I Right now, well, my postdoc was um, focused on numerical modeling of um, slip rate data. So slip rate being uh, basically how fast or slow a given fault will accommodate uh, tectonic strain. So basically how frequently and how, how frequently does a fault have big earthquakes? And you do a time averaged rate. So I was doing some numerical modeling of, of those sorts of data because the really the main input that geologists can offer um, for hazard modeling, for seismic hazard modeling, but slip rates turns out that they're really poorly understood. We don't really know what they mean. And they're really not a great way to capture earthquake behavior, but yet this is what we're left with. So the project was kind of centered around like, how can we make these data a little bit more palatable in a numerical sense? and and, and that work kind of turned into my permanent job right now, which is still a research geologist, like you said, at USGS, but it's more focused on, um, well, there's like there's still that component of understanding geology and, and completing fieldwork once the pandemic is, is over. Um, but right now, what that looks like is preparing geologic inputs across the entire Western US and, and uh, Alaska and Hawaii and the territories um, preparing geologic inputs for all of those areas for the National Seismic Hazard Model that will be re-released in 2023. So 
um, we're really pushing hard right now to prepare for that update, which seems like um, pretty far away, but turns out everybody in that modeling pipeline needs geologic data. <laughs> like, where are the faults? <laughs> so, um, so right now we're making like a, a fault section database of all of the active faults, uh, basically in the Western US, in, in Alaska and the territories. And when was, was there a previous like national seismic survey or is this the first one? No, it's a product that is continually re-released by USGS. The last one was released in 2018. Okay. Um, but, and the one before that was in 2014. So it's, it's about every four to six years um, going back to 1996. Um, the problem is that not everywhere across the Western US um, gets updated at the same level and every time. So this is going to be a complete overhaul of basically everything. There's typically a lot of focus placed on California, sort of for obvious reasons, because it's the biggest uh, seismic risk. So it's not only a lot of seismic hazard, but coupled out with all the people and infrastructure there, it's, a, it's an enormous amount of risk. So it makes good sense to focus on California, but um, you know, only half of the faults in the National Seismic Hazard Model are in California, half are elsewhere. <laughs> so wow. we have to pay some attention to those two. Cool. And you, okay, so you said your, that's due at the end in 2023, but all the modeling is needed. So when do you have to have all of these faults kind of aggregated by? Oh, that's a great question. <laughs> so the deadline we've been given is the end of this calendar year, which is ticking really um, rapidly. <laughs> so, so we've been working on this project for the better part of, of this year. Um, in addition to my postdoc, was sort of uh, um, a really good way to get involved with more people in our building. Because so I'm at the Geologic Hazard Science Center, which is mostly concerned with earthquake monitoring and the National Seismic Hazard Map. But there are quite a few um, earthquake geologists in the building, so it was a good chance to kind of spread between some groups, and it turned into this pretty awesome and intense, certainly intense, but the product is going to be pretty awesome. So we're, we're doing like a complete survey of the Western US, making sure that all the quaternary active faults that we know to be out there are considered for seismic hazard analysis. So it'll be a pretty massive overhaul. Wow, how fun. Yeah. It's pretty awesome. Yeah. And it's very like impactful too. It is, yeah, it feels nice because sometimes you can go out and dig a trench across a fault in the middle of nowhere and feel like, well, this is really cool geologically, but like, um, what, am, what am I serving? What purpose is it going towards? But this gives a, a really easy avenue for all of those kind of disparate data. And this was the whole purpose, you know, of, of people going out and doing all these type specific studies that on the surface have no meaning, not no meaning, but, you know, limited impact to the public. But this is a, a, a way to make all of those observations aggregate and impactful and actually have meaning in the bigger picture. And so does that data then get released to the public in some way, or is it more like collected for USGS to then understand where the risk areas are and like think about alerts? Like what, what does the end product go towards, I guess? Yeah, that's a good question. So, so then the main sort of product that the public gets to ingest is a, is a physical map. Well, it's on the internet, but it's a map that gets produced with, um, you could plot it with a bunch of different metrics. I think there were like 52 different maps released for the 2018 release. And kind of the most common one is chance of shaking in um, 
the next 50 years, I think is the one that's on the website. So it gives you just an understanding of like high hazard versus low hazard. It's very um, uh, qualitative for the uh, public consumption because it's quite frankly, it's really intense statistics that are hard to communicate um, effectively to the general public. So it's, it's typically shown schematically, but um, anyone can access the actual data on USGS website, it's um, called like uniform hazard tool or unified hazard tool or something. And you can see the faults that are contributing to your seismic hazard where you're sitting or at any location across the US and sort of get a better picture of that. But the real end users of this product are typically consultants or engineers or utility companies, um, people who need to understand the seismic hazard at their specific location. Wow, how awesome. So, okay. And, and so you said it gives you a 50-year likelihood of an earthquake. Well, not necessarily of an earthquake, of shaking. Actually. So it doesn't it does calculate, um, the model will calculate the rate of earthquakes on a given fault, but that's not typically the output that's plotted. It's like, uh, what's the likelihood of me living here and experiencing strong shaking in the next 50 years? And that is, I guess I've never thought about the difference between shaking and an earthquake. Yeah, right. So it's kind of um, a hard one to get around, but like imagine being in LA Basin. Mm -hmm. There's not, the San Andreas doesn't go through LA Basin. It's far outside of the basin. Mm -hmm. But if there was an earthquake on the southern San Andreas, you would certainly feel it strongly right. in LA, depending on how it ruptured. But most likely you'd feel it in, in LA. So it doesn't necessarily mean there needs to be a fault under your butt to feel an earthquake or to feel strong shaking. Um, it's more spatially average than that. I see. Oh, so cool. Yeah. That's neat, yeah. Okay, and I feel like a question that seismologists are always getting is, can you predict when the next earthquake is going to be? Uh, no. <laughs> I wish. But, I mean, I, I wish and I don't. It's 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 hard. I, there's this kind of famous aphorism in our community. It's like people ask, when is the next earthquake? And it's when is not always the question because we know it's going to happen like of course the when would be helpful but it's the where is also more helpful because there's lots of choices to pick from so i think understanding where the next earthquake could happen of course timing is is crucial too but do you always want to like put it in the framework of oh if we knew there was going to be an earthquake in the next day let's say Mm -hmm. Could you imagine you being in Christchurch if somebody said, oh, there's going to be an earthquake, a massive earthquake in Christchurch in the next day? What do you think would happen to the public? Yeah, just a mass panic. Mass panic. And like, like probably more people would die from trying to flee the city than from the earthquake. So it's it's a real challenge. It's like, of course, that would be helpful. And 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 probably ultimately save lives. I don't mean to be so so cursory, but it would cause, like you said, mass panic. Yeah, but I mean, and honestly, just having lived in Christchurch and Los Angeles, two very earthquake um, pro or susceptible cities, I guess. I would. It's like in LA, probably the risk of more people getting hurt, panicking is probably way higher, just because you have so many more people in the That's area. That's right. Yeah. Imagine the traffic. <laughs> yes, exactly. What are you going to do? Everyone walks 15 miles to... Right. I don't know. You know, you, you just get on the 405 and wait in a conveyor belt until you get somewhere. It's like, come on. Um, 
so yeah it's kind of a hard line to walk now that all being said not to keep popping usgs products but there is um shake alert that has just come out which gives like um an it's called earthquake early warning and it gives a slight um a slight heads up that an earthquake might be coming to you and you might experience shaking of a specific intensity so there's there's like some sort of uh how do you say if the earthquake is far enough away from you but you're still close enough that you'll feel strong shaking there's a delay that's detectable between different um, waves that are emanating from the focus of the earthquake from where the earthquake starts so you can measure that distance time distance between the wave arrivals really precisely and then send an alert really quickly <laughs> and you might get like 10 seconds of warning or something ah and so i guess this is a good lead-in to yeah that first that 10 seconds might be really big because what as a seismologist what is the most important thing for the public to know about earthquakes what can they do to protect themselves if they only have 10 seconds yeah that's a great question so i think the most important thing to do in, in that amount of time is to get underneath a table or protect your head and hold on to something so um it's drop cover and hold on is the phrasing that uh gets circled around a lot and the most critical thing is to just protect your head and and yeah make sure nothing is going to fall on top of you or you know you're not in a vulnerable position or something like that yeah and so okay i'm gonna throw out some common things that you hear for your professional opinion sure okay so i know the table is the best so i'm looking at a table in my house that's the one i'm gonna get under if there's an earthquake here um Mm -hmm. but let's say if that table's not here i don't have anything that good in my house to get under is the door frame really a good idea uh so the door frame is kind of like it's kind of an earthquake urban legend although it's rooted in truth it's just not as safe as it it used to be so the earthquake well getting in the doorway while you feel shaking was perpetuated following um a major earthquake that happened in the late 1800s in eastern california on the owens valley fault and in that situation a lot of the houses were built with mud um but the door frames were built with wood And so one of the observations that was made after the earthquake was that a lot of the homes um, were completely disintegrated except for the door frames. So then it became this idea that the door frames the safest part of the house. (laughs) Well, in those uh, sort of 19th century homes, there wasn't actually doors in the doorways. So now if you go to stand in a door doorway that has a door, in fact, you stand to be harmed more by the door smashing into the doorway than by the actual oh. earthquake. So hospitals often see um, an uptick in like finger injuries because their people put their fingers in door hinges and then um, doors will slam on them. <laughs> so it's kind of an odd um, downstream effect, but yeah, the doorway is maybe safe if you can brace yourself in, in a hallway or a doorway that doesn't have a door attached to it. Um, but yeah, I would say if there's nothing in your room, you're not even close to a doorway. Um, if you can just maybe look up and see what could fall on me and where I'm sitting, and then maybe cover your the, your neck and your head and, and be in a prone position. Sort of taking up the least amount of space, making sure that your head is covered would probably be the safest. Oh, wow. That is a great 
like story about why the door frame is wrong too because I had heard that it's not correct but the why that you gave is very yeah mm. that's excellent to hear <laughs> <laughs> that's that's like maybe it's maybe it's earthquake geologist urban legend but <laughs> that's what I've learned from a few different people over the years so right. I'm saying it might be true all right we'll go with it <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thank you for walking us through some, yeah, your research and earthquake stuff. Um, I wonder if you could talk about kind of how you got where you are, what, you know, your grad school experience was like, what your growing up experience, like anything in between. You can start recently or like when you're a kid. I don't know. How did you get here? Oh, on the auspicious day of June 5th, 1990, I was born. No. <laughs> and then and then when I was 18, I went to college and there was nothing happened. Um, no, but seriously, I mean, I grew up um, in Massachusetts and geology was just not really a thing that I was exposed to at all. And I had no idea that geology was... Um, uh, a profession or a thing that people could do. I thought geology, what I did know of geology was basically paleontology and um, not much else going on there. Uh, but then I went to college with the hopes of being an English major. And well, that was like maybe my third choice, but I ended up declaring an English major. And, and then um, I took uh, an environmental studies class at the behest of a friend. And then I, I, I sort of liked the class, but the part that really piqued my interest was not the biological part or the wetlands part or the policy part, but it was like the, maybe the two total hours we spent on geology. <laughs> That's the cool part of this whole class. And, <laughs> and so then I ended up taking a geology class and it was sort of um, history from there. And I, um, yeah, so that was my sophomore year of college. So the second semester of my sophomore year when I took that first geology class. But um, that was also a point, an interesting point in my life because at the end of my first semester of sophomore year was when I was diagnosed with, with thyroid cancer. And so I was starting to go through this treatment plan and like undergo surgery and like this whole the whole nine yards right at the start of the um semester <laughs> so I was like this could totally be a wash and I I, I just kind of focused on school as um hmm. a distraction from everything else but it turns out I don't know if it was the um perfect storm of just not wanting to <laughs> really consider what was happening in my life outside of school or the fact that geology was actually so interesting <laughs> but it like really stuck and um there ended up being a, a great research opportunity in the geology department uh that summer uh at, at wellesley that dealt with environmental health which was really interesting to me at that point because it turned out that i probably got um you know, probably got sick with cancer because of environmental pollutants and uh, where I was growing up. So it became like really interesting to me really quick that I could see, oh, people study this and people understand this. And like, I, I guess I could do that too. So um, I spent the summer basically in a canoe sampling all of these um, rivers sediments uh, for heavy metals that used to have um, all these mill, mill dams along them and this watershed association and our research group were working together to understand the mobility of heavy metals uh, in the watershed. 
And I thought that was like the coolest thing I could possibly do. So I'm trying to <laughs> get around this personal struggle. And um, it turns out I'm really bad at chemistry. I'm really good at canoeing, but I'm like horrible at chemistry. <laughs> so, so that part of it didn't really stick, but that was sort of the uh, tipping point for me was understanding like, oh, if I study the earth and then it can maybe help people as a result, that would be pretty cool. Wow. I did not know that your thyroid cancer was caused by environmental pollutants. Yeah, you know, it's kind of funny. They don't, that's what they basically said was probably came from that. It turns out there's a pretty high concentration of thyroid cancer um, among women above the age of 60 in the um, city that I grew up, but not many 19 year olds. But it turns out, you know, it's just, seems like it's sort of concentrated there. I lived near a river that had um, two hospitals upriver from it, and it's totally plausible um, that something could have happened along the way. That's, um, that yeah. the hospitals themselves were releasing chemicals, or that the hospitals are there because they're treating people? Oh, no, yeah, that's a good clarification. I, it's probable that there was just medical waste and... <gasps> Um, that could have been in the river or it's it could have been exposed to radiation as a young kid. Um, wow. I don't know. <laughs> it's It sort of remains an open question. And I never really, the doctors that I had couldn't really pinpoint it, but they said a typical cause is environmental pollutants or environmental radiation, something being around me that was radioactive. Wow. Um, yeah. Well, I am very glad you have been cancer free for 10 years now. Yes, that's right. Thanks. Yeah. yeah, congratulations. And I never knew that that was from probable environmental contaminants. And it's going to take me a few days to <laughs> wrap my head around that. And then I'll be angry about it for the rest of my life. But uh... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, who really knows? It was kind of interesting because they said, well, if, you, if you've gotten cancer from whatever it is, your family must also be at risk mm. because maybe it's in your house or something. Nobody else in my family yeah. had it. Everybody was fine. So I don't know. I kind of maybe got... Um, you got the I short got, stick I, or whatever. I got the card, so yeah. that was fine. Yeah. And does that have anything to do with your sister as a nurse? Is that, do you think that is related at all? You getting sick? Um, no, I mean, that was... My sister wasn't a nurse at that time, so I don't know that that you know she, she yeah she was actually in high school oh when yeah that happened I meant yeah. her choosing that career oh her choosing that no I you know that probably came more from my grandmother who was a nurse oh. um yeah no so she's um Nicole used to want to be a vet and then realized that um yeah it's there's only like a handful of vet schools and she still was really interested in biology so she just switched from people to um, animal, or sorry, from animals <laughs> to people. <laughs> from animals to animals. <laughs> That's right, exactly. Meat bags to meat bags. So. <laughs> That's your professional uh, geologist's opinion of living <laughs> organisms. I don't understand biology and I don't claim <laughs> to. <laughs> That's the greatest mystery of our planet, as far as I'm concerned. All right, so you were in college working on some earth science related projects and then that was going well it was much more fun than having cancer at least and totally <laughs> um okay so then what how did you decide to go and do a master's 
Yeah, good question. So I ended up going to field camp um, between my junior and senior years of, of undergrad, and and it was in Montana uh, and a little bit into Wyoming. And oh my God, I don't think I had ever seen topography <laughs> ever in my life um, because when I got there, I was just gobsmacked every day for like whatever it was, five or six weeks. So it just, I was really struck by topography and, and I had never seen mountains and I couldn't understand why they were there. And then I was like, well, I gotta kind of think about that for a minute. So that one, I was like, wow, faults are a thing. Like just wasn't really part of our curriculum mm -hmm. in Northeast geology because, uh, well, there are no real faults. So we did a lot of volcanics and um, ocean processes and, and stream processes and geomorphology, but not like, earthquakes and faulting. So that was my first exposure to that. And then I ended up doing my master's at, at UMass Amherst because um, I found this my awesome master's advisor, Michelle Cook, who was doing analog modeling of these um, fault structures that I was so interested about and building topography in these little tiny um, boxes of clay. And I just thought oh. that was like maybe the coolest thing ever. And, and also it was a chance for me to see if I actually liked that part of geology because up until then I had really just done mm, like more of environmental science work than actual true geology. So I wasn't sure that it was going to stick or that I'd be any good at it <laughs> or, or anything. So I opted for this master's and something that seemed like pretty fundamental to this, to the science of understanding faulting and, and, and how mountains are built in, in that sort of realm. So I was like, okay, this is a good chance for me to learn about this. And turns out I really liked it. I don't, I didn't think I was really that good at it at the time, but I managed to keep going. And I, when I was doing my master's, it was all lab work, right? It was all oh. in my little clay box situation until kind of the end of my first year, um, my master's advisor asked me if I wanted to go to the field and see some faults for real. And I was like, whoa, of course. So she, she just called up her buddy. And, and then I was on a plane to California and I, I met up with who ended up becoming, um, you know, and still is a great mentor for me. And a good friend is Kate Scherer at USGS. And she took me to, um, a trench that she was about what uh, she took me to the San Andreas and we opened up some trenches uh, at the Elizabeth Lake site and I was like oh this is what I'm supposed to be doing <laughs> it was like so evident I was like oh this like it clicked right away and I was like okay now I know I have my path and it all happened pretty quickly but after that field season I came back to the lab and I was like okay I'm gonna go do my PhD in California thanks <laughs> and it was and then I left and after you know after I finished my master's and I started doing um, trenching and and slip rate studies and and more active tectonics where it, the the link between the two is that my master's was you know mountain building over million year time scales but it wasn't really getting at individual earthquakes and understanding they're really close to the present time and and how anything of that affects people hmm. it was really just kind of pure geology and and I was more interested in sort of the more recent past, maybe like the last few tens of thousands of years. Mm -hmm. So um, that's that's kind of the the link between the old time scales and big spatial scales to now being more interested in like what just happened and what's about to happen. Yeah, and I guess because I've seen you give talks, I know what these trenches look like, but they're mm. basically like I don't know a 
five foot deep like very um box-like hole that you can get in and look at layers of sediment and see layers where basically things have moved and then you know that there's an earthquake is that a fair Joyce it's better than I could have done it (laughs) that's perfect only because I've seen you give the talk (laughs) (laughs) so yeah you nailed it it's just yeah observing what the the layers of sand and silt gravel whatever you might see in the trench or or even cluvial wedges when there's an earthquake sometimes you might have a lot of um uh, vertical motion and so then you expose the free face you make this fault scarp eventually that falls down so then you can see evidence of these colluvial wedges falling down in the trench and then you you date them with uh like well, you can date them with absolute chronometers like radiocarbon or luminescence or whatever and then you get an earthquake chronology out of that exactly cool so okay yeah. speaking of vertical motion i have mm. been driving past into kaikoura a lot in the last year uh. And while we were both getting our PhDs, Kaikoura had a massive earthquake, and you flew here how long after that one? Uh, Right. So that earthquake happened November 16th. um, I guess it was November 15th in California. (laughs) And then I was on the plane November 20th, and and then I stayed there for about 10 days, I think. Mm -hmm. Maybe I got the dates a little wrong, but I was there about three or four days after and um, it was amazing. We just rolled up to Blenheim Airport. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, it, the main team leading the response, the reconnaissance mapping was GNS Science, sort of the government science agency for geologic and nuclear sciences. And they um, had, in essence, sort of made home base out of this motor home in essentially. So everybody would just gather in the parking lot at the end of every day and just talk about what they saw. And it was, it was almost like the most exciting summer camp I'd ever been to, although <laughs> it's like really massive, massive offsets and just the most mind-blowing things you could ever imagine. It, it was a truly impressive earthquake. So give us a sense of the offsets or like the obvious motion you're usually seeing and then how big the motion was during the Kaikoura earthquake. Okay. So in one situation we were on, um, so, so the Kaikoura earthquake ruptured more than about 10 or 15 named fault traces, which is that in and of itself is sort of an unwieldy number. Normally it's just a handful, like maybe one, two or three different mm-hmm. faults, but this was maybe jumping across boundaries of between faults or segments between faults that we didn't think were before possible. Mm-hmm. And and that's probably because the subduction zone beneath all the crustal faults was also activated on the earthquake. So you just had way more pervasive slip and really massive slip. So one of the cooler offsets that we saw, we were just walking along the fault and came to a dirt road that we were planning on driving down later that day. And a good thing we didn't because the the road had been offset, gosh, maybe about eight meters laterally and about two meters vertically. <laughs> so it was just like hanging there. Like, honestly, not quite as, as um, I guess, I don't know what the right word is, crazy as the San Andreas movie with Dwayne The Rock Johnson, but like not <laughs> that far removed from it. It was insane. It was just like the biggest, it's, it's as if a giant just ripped across the earth. There was one place that the hill, the hill just completely shattered. 
and it, we drove by it every day going in and out of the field area and it looked like a giant dinosaur like pterodactyl was just like scraping across the hill it was insane it's just like big big deep gashes you know fissures probably two to three meters deep it was insane wow yeah, and yeah. I guess the other, the, like, very interesting thing here, I mean, there's, like, there's so much with the Kaikoura earthquake. There's, like, all the landslides, the, mm-hmm. yeah, the massive offsets. The fisheries have been really disrupted because it affected the coastline so much that it basically raised these abalone beds and, like, really altered all of the juvenile habitat for a lot of marine species. Yes, right. And, and I guess the other, the good thing about the Kaikoura earthquake was that, like, it was very few fatalities, right? I think there were only two fatalities reported, hmm. which was pretty, um, you know, still terrible for the two people that lost their lives. But mm-hmm. it's it was quite low considering the amount of energy that was released in this earthquake. Like if that same earthquake happened in a more populated area, it would be a lot more dire. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> yeah, and I guess, yeah, the Christchurch 2011 earthquake is probably a good example of much much worse loss of life um, much worse yeah, yeah. And, and it was smaller earthquake yeah yeah and so okay so I know you talked about that there was slippage but can you give me a non-seismologist um, explanation of why the Kaikoura earthquake happened so there we know like the most of the entire Pacific Ocean is lined by fault boundaries because the Pacific plate is basically the outside of the Pacific Ocean. So that's why LA has earthquakes. That's why like the West Coast of the US does. That's why New Zealand does. But do you know why, or does, do we as Earth scientists know why this earthquake in particular happened? Ooh, that's a good question. So like, like just as you were saying, you did a great job summarizing the tectonics of the Pacific plate. So, you know, there's a lot of motion between the Pacific plate and all of its neighbors. So the neighboring plate um, in New Zealand is the Australian plate. So the plate boundary between Pacific and Australian plate goes right through um, the country of New Zealand. So it starts off the southern coast in the ocean, and then it comes on land as the Alpine Fault, which is probably the biggest fault in uh, on land fault in New Zealand. And then it uh, the, the plate boundary, as it gets closer to uh, the northern part of the South Island, so getting beyond Kaikoura and closer to like Picton and Blenheim in that area, it splays off into a lot of more distributed faulting. So it's no longer this really gargantuan alpine fault that's pretty analogous to the San Andreas in a lot of ways. Um, it's, it's distributed across many smaller faults mm. and those smaller faults are what ruptured primarily in in the Kaikoura earthquake so what was pretty interesting is that the whole zone across there is receiving the same amount of plate motion that you know that's at the plate boundaries in the ocean it's just distributed over many more faults mm. at the northern part of the south island so it was pretty complex because it was almost like a domino effect just must have been hitting it at the perfectly right moment where a lot of these faults were at their sort of critical stress levels where they can't accumulate any more strain and they all start to rupture hmm. at once. Um, yeah. And so if you have a situation like that where you have a lot more faults instead of just one big one, is that like, quote unquote, a little better because the energy is distributed or do you end up still having the same risk 
size-wise of earthquakes, if that question makes any sense? Yeah, that's an interesting question. So right, we measure earthquakes based on magnitude, which is, or, or typically moment magnitude. And that is a calculation that is really um, simply put as the combination between the, the area of the fault plane that slipped or fault planes, plural, that slip, slipped, um, the strength of the earth. So like basically how strong was the earth where um, the rupture happened? It turns out that doesn't really change too much um, around the world, but either way, there's some rigidity to the earth and then there's the displacement of the earthquake. So it's really a product of the displacement times the area is sort of the, the size of the earthquake. Hmm. So you could have had, so Kaikoura was a magnitude 7.8 and that was distributed, like I said, over tons of different faults. And, you know, you could have had a 7.8 on um, just the Alpine fault, for instance, mm -hmm. and ruptured just one little segment of the Alpine fault, but released the same amount of energy. So would it be sort of better to get rid of, get rid of quote unquote more energy and a bunch of different faults versus one fault? sort of comes out in the wash right the earth doesn't know that the faults are there mm -hmm. it's just kind of burping so the earth is so rude it doesn't read our papers <laughs> it doesn't know where we think the next earthquake you know where the past earthquakes have been so we think it could be over here the earth doesn't care it's just like burping whenever it feels like it wherever it feels like it so ultimately it's the same product to the earth whether it's better or not for people living on the earth, I think it, it really just matters where you are relative to the fault and what you're standing on. So like, you know, if you're on a soft sediment, it's going to shake a lot more than if you're on rock or something. So yeah, I don't know if I answered your question. No, I mean, I don't know. I, I think you did. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. And luckily, I guess like, so is the, is the, southern alps or like is the big fault line in the southern alps like does it just run through it pretty much yeah <laughs> so it's right at the um what would be i guess the western edge of the alps mm -hmm. and so the alpine fault i said it is similar to the san andreas but it's actually not quite so similar to the san andreas in the sense that the san andreas is really lateral it moves Pacific and North American plates sort of horizontally by each other, but the Alpine fault has quite a bit of um, vertical component to it as well. So it's more of an oblique slip than a than a horizontal than a lateral fault. And that's why so, we get the Southern Alps down here. They're getting lifted up because of that vertical motion. Um, probably not entirely. The the Alps might be older than the the fault. Although the oh. fault's pretty old, so it's a it's a slow going process. And there could have been older topography there to begin with, but the Alpine fault was certainly helping the the Alps get taller. Yeah. Huh. Cool. <laughs> it's pretty uh, neat, right? Yeah. Very Fault, cool. Faults give us everything we like, and also a lot of hazard. But really, they give us all the topography that we really love. So, yeah, it's a net positive. Yeah. Um. Okay. So I guess to change gears a little bit here. So. Yeah. I mean, what? How did you find? How have you found your your academic experience and like how are you liking your I guess do you still consider yourself strictly an academic or like you're kind of in a different role than people who just classically go through a PhD and get like a postdoc in a faculty position 
So mm-hmm. I'm curious if you could like tell me about what's a little bit different at USGS and like maybe like pros and cons. And and yeah, also just if you want to talk about what your grad school journey was like. Sure. Yeah. Okay. So it's kind of an interesting question you're asking. So I don't. I first off, I don't consider myself an academic, and um, and. I consider myself more of a scientist Mm -hmm. and it's an interesting spot because I never really, I don't know. I never really pondered it, but it's interesting. I don't feel so, um, I mean, I'm tied to a system, right? I work for an organization. I work for a government agency, but Mm -hmm. I'm not so um, tied to the academic system anymore. And I'm seeing them the longer I'm at USGS there is, you know, some restrictions, but with being a USGS, a government scientist, um, but there's actually quite few restrictions compared to being an academic. There's, for instance, like no requirement to write grants, right? Like, in fact, you know, we have, we have, I have a salary and then there's a research budget that comes with our group. And so I'm not writing grants to survive. So that to me is a distinction between um, being an academic or, or being able to necessarily advise a student, um, be their primary advisor. I'm able to advise students. Like for instance, there's Colorado School of Mines in, in Golden here. And um, some people in our building sit on other students' co- committees, for instance, at, at Mines. But um, yeah, there's not really this academic culture either. It's very much a flat structure of leadership, at least in, in our direct group, where it's just like, we're a bunch of people who are interested in faults and how they work. And we just do that together. And it's not so much that like everybody sits in their own office, at least in our building and just does their own thing. I think it's quite collaborative and I feel like I'm able to explore the questions that I'm interested in. And, you know, the questions that I'm interested in are directly related to USGS missions and, and what we are obligated to do as a, as a government agency. So it really fits my interests quite well. Wow. Yeah. What a plug. I feel really lucky. I know. I, I can't say enough about it. It's fantastic. I mean, there's, there's just like not that hierarchy that is, can be really punitive in the academic culture mm-hmm. where there's certainly hierarchy in our building, right? Like I have a supervisor and he has a supervisor and there is a chain of command mm-hmm. and, and that's really comforting. And, and I almost prefer that sort of hierarchy compared to academia, where it's just like the, um, the sort of feudal system that exists between advisors and students. And it's almost good for nobody, right? Like the advisors don't always get what they want. The students don't always get what they want. And, and the faculty are, can be left aimless, right? There's, they don't really have a supervisor, nor, nor maybe do they want one, because maybe that's why they're in academia, because they can be their own boss. But I don't know. It's just, it's just, I can't say enough how much of a different and a, a more positive vibe it is for, for me at least and how I like to, to work. Yeah. And I guess it's like, yeah, it's like in academia, you can end up, there's either, it could be way too much oversight if you have an overbearing advisor exactly. or no oversight if you're a professor in a department with a less... Uh, well, I mean, there's there's very little ways to like enforce anything, I guess, on tenured faculty. But yeah. right, yeah, yeah. Wow. Well, I'm so happy they got that job. And I guess I should say, I feel like when when you enter grad school in the U.S. for earth science, 
I feel like there is a quite a vibe of like oh and like the USGS jobs are the most coveted in the land like it's <laughs> <laughs> kind of that vibe right but then yeah. there's also kind of this um I don't know what the right word for it is it disdain or something where where there there people don't feel like sometimes there's enough like high science at some of the groups or whatever and I to me it's like we're all doing the same, we're all serving the same mission and parts are maybe more pure research than others. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think it all serves a pretty important understanding. Oh, definitely. High science. I've never even heard that term. High science. Maybe that's just an Alex term. No, I I was like, oh, did you make this up? It sounds, yeah, it's like posh high science. I like it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and it's like, it's not, it's it's a big time suck to aggregate every earthquake in like the u.s and the territories that's a lot of time and one grad student is not the right person to do that and so if there wasn't usgs maybe no one would be doing it because there's not a lot of money making incentive and that's uh, right exactly right that's such a great way to look at it yeah it's work that really needs to get done for the greater good of scientists and for people but right who's going to do that if not a government federally funded agency wow cool okay alex well that seems like a good place to leave you and i really appreciate your time and thank you so much for telling us about your research and about usgs and now they'll probably get a bunch more applications from people (laughs) that's right yeah mendenhall postdoc opportunities are open (laughs) (laughs) i think i will go look into one myself more the merrier so yeah thanks for having me Joyce this was really fun talking to you that's it for us this week thank you so much for listening and we hope you enjoyed the show please follow us on our social media pages for any updates and we'll see you next time